Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Geoffrey Farrer and I'm a Methodist minister based in Putney in southwest London. Before I was ordained, I spent 10 years working in the House of Commons as a clerk and I am committed to connecting how we pray and read our scriptures to how we live and vote. Each week, I'm going to be joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. And today, for my first guest in this new series, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Mike Long. Mike is currently the minister at Notting Hill Methodist Church in West London, following appointments in the London area and North Wales over the past 30 years or so. He studied theology and politics during his ministerial training and has always had a keen interest in community engagement, poverty and economics, as well as politics. His PhD was on the Jubilee 2000 campaign and the theology of international debt. He serves on the church's advisory panel on the ethics of investment and assists with the theological work attached to the Walking with Micah project. Mike chaired Shelter's Commission on Social Housing, which published its report in 2019, and remains passionate about this, not least amid the gross overcrowding and stark inequalities of Notting Hill. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mike, and it's lovely to have Mike, one of my colleagues as a fellow superintendent minister in London with us today. Now, as we know, politics in the pulpit can be a very contentious topic, but we also believe that it's essential that the world around us speaks into our churches. When you hear arguments saying that politics should not form part of our preaching, Mike, what is your response? Oh, really? Well, I think, I mean, the gospel is to do with the whole of life and therefore embraces politics like, like everything else. No realm of our lives, um, our, our individual lives, personal lives, our collective lives, the life of the world um, should, should not be, is not touched by the gospel of Jesus. Um, and therefore, I think politics is, is part of that mix. I think there are ways in which to do that. And in, certainly in my experience, I haven't generally faced issues about raising politics as an issue in church or in worship. It's, it's more about how it's done and whether it's done clumsily or at least it's, it's done in a way which people can understand that this is, this is, this is related to the gospel um, or the kingdom of God in some particular way. And certainly in my present context, there are no there are no issues in a, in a sense people rub up against issues of of injustice and political issues with a small p perhaps much of their time and for them what what worship is about in terms in terms of their their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of what god promises to them is is something that is profoundly about their their lives now mm. um, and and therefore, is is political with a small p, and uh, and perhaps unfortunate. But I've not I've not had resistance, more in the sense that the understanding that what people are looking for is is a message, which connects the things of God to the things of people, uh, and they understand the connections. And I think politics is is part of that. It's not the only one, but it's certainly an important one. Yes, yeah, I'd agree entirely with that. Um, from your context, then. In Notting Hill, what would you want us to hear as key justice issues, uh, or uh, political events, or political um, topics? Do you think? 
there's, there's some topics and there's one about process, I suppose, or about the wider system, I suppose, from, from our little corner at least. Yeah. Um, one clearly is about housing. Um, we are one of the most densely populated parts of Western Europe. Um, and uh, overcrowding is a significant feature with no easy solutions to that and certainly no easy solutions in the hands of a relatively small local authority in this part of inner London. Uh, but, but the effects of that are quite profound when you consider the number of people who are affected by that um, in, in, in the local church, but, but in, in much of the local area of North Kensington and indeed other parts of the borough um, further towards the south of the River Thames as well. And um, so uh, housing and the lack of affordability of housing is a big issue, as are issues to do with status and rights. For the number of people who I see some weeks, certainly every month, um, who have issues about their status in terms of their status in this country. But the, the knock-on effects of that, because they're not allowed to work, are, are really quite severe mm. and play into issues of housing and mental health. Um, so people are not allowed to work. I spoke to somebody very recently, for instance, who, who's going through the proper systems with the Home Office of, of um, getting their visas sorted out and so on, is in some fragile accommodation, um, is not allowed to work legally, and therefore has no money to be able to afford the housing, other than going to somebody um, and working, as it were, technically illegally, as a, a, a I won't say what capacity, um, mm -hmm. but is being paid about four pounds an hour. Now that's way, way below any kind of minimum wage. And, and I said to her, you know, you are being exploited. And she says, yes, I know, but I'm so grateful because it's that or nothing. Now, I, I, and therefore there is this hidden world, I, I suppose, that there is often there not in sight. And it's to do with the overcrowding, but housing issues is, is part of that. Well, another one is about status. Another one is about inequality. This is particularly stark, of course, in, in a place like Notting Hill, perhaps more than other parts of the country, um, certainly in parts of the country. Uh, because we have the very richest and some of the poorest people, um, though I, I, I don't like to use the word poor, but, but, but in an objective uh, um, assessment, they are. The danger of using such language, of course, that it's seen as a, as a, as a deficit kind of thing, when actually, as, as, as I know all too well, uh, people in this community are incredibly rich in gifts and, and other kind of non-material resources. And so there's, it, there's a housing, there's issues about, about status and there are issues about inequality uh, in particular. The other one is about process, I think, which I suspect is echoed in many other places where you have a system whereby many people in, in a local, local area feel they don't count because the, the voting system is, is a first past the post. That, will, that is unlikely to change with the makeup of the current borough. And this will be replicated whether the, the, the local authority is, well, of, of any particular political party. But it does create a particular kind of politics locally. And certainly we've, we've seen some of the difficult legacy of that in recent years here. And, and it, does, it does beg the question about different ways of perhaps of working this system, different ways in which perhaps either local authorities can work. And I think there are different models out there perhaps, so that, which are genuinely more inclusive. Um, so that so that a, a voting system genuinely delivers, obviously, at least to reflect the wishes of the population you vote, but somehow takes into account those who 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 lose 
as yeah. well. I could go on. I mean, we've seen this just in the news in recent days with events happening in places like Brazil and, and the United States. But there's a big issue there about about how how you you know 51 percent yes they're the majority, but but sometimes it's actually quite necessary to take the 49 percent with you some distance, even though they can't have a veto, and that's and that's about a different kind of consensus, which isn't entirely sorry a different kind of politics, not entirely built on consensus, but but is more inclusive I think, mm-hmm. than simply winner takes all. Yes, I mean it's inter- you talk about those systemic issues. And certainly from my time in the House of Commons, and I I will say to people, I was an independent advisor, I was like a civil servant, and so I spoke to everybody and we worked with all parties. It was those systemic issues that were the hardest to deal with, but so necessary. I mean, 20 years ago, I was talking to one of your fellow, your London MPs, who was banging on, as we would say, about housing benefit and housing, and those issues have just not gone away. And we are now dealing with those systemic issues. And I think we as London ministers see that so acutely, in particular, because if I take my bike and go the 10 minutes to my little chapel in Roehampton, I will cycle through some of the most expensive housing, you know, houses that are two, three million quid going into one of the most deprived parts of London, the, the Alton Estate on Roehampton, built in the 1950s. Um, and I live in the borough of Wandsworth, you know, Margaret Thatcher's great flagship borough with, um, with, with selling off council houses, proud to say only had a handful of council houses left in the 1980s. Those huge problems of housing are now really on our doorstep. And... and, and it, it, it's you cannot tinker with I, I, it's there's a yeah. big big issue yeah though so i just as an aside two or three two to three million pounds here would not buy you a particularly expensive house in, in, <laughs> in Hilbert. Uh, uh, but chicken but, speed uh, in just, uh, <laughs> perhaps not chicken I, I, but um you're you're absolutely right um, mm. about there are some issues which which go beyond the issues of uh, party politics, and in particular, even five-year terms of yeah. of of whatever of national governments as well. Housing, I would say, is one of them. And yeah. I would, perhaps, I'm naive. I would love to see ways in which there is greater cross-party cooperation on certain issues. One would be about social housing, um, which in the past there was a consensus about, certainly in the fifties, where Conservative and Labour governments fought with each other and competed to see who could be the, the champion of social housing, who could build more than the other party, yeah. because they both recognised the need um, in the immediate post-war years for a vast um, uh, um, investment in, in housing for the population. Uh, and that took place. Another one would be the NHS, to give an example. Yeah. Uh, the parties are fighting over this. There are, there are some really critical issues aside from the, the important ones about things like pay and conditions for NHS staff. But there are more fundamental, even more fundamental ones than that about the NHS, it strikes me. Um, and, and the political parties, I think, inevitably, when they see things in five-year terms, I don't blame them for this, um, are, are very much, um, that, that affects their, their decision-making power, their decision-making um, priorities. What we need, I would suggest, is something which, which is different um, whether it's a royal commission, I, I don't understand all these things, but but some some different approach 
um, to some of the major issues which our country faces, which need a, a real reframing, I would suggest. And perhaps there, are, there is more consensus around some of the, the analysis than we might like to think. Yes, and and again, you know, from I think you, your your point about the political the voting system is 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 very apt. We are this confrontational system we have in the UK does not lead, lead to consensus, unless unless and and, and but but you, what I also saw from behind closed doors in West in, in Westminster and Whitehall was, as you say, huge overlaps of of recognition of you know, uh, common uh, problems, uh, I'd, I'd add the care sector, I think, mm, yeah, that. Yeah. care sector, the NHS, education, common concerns, common consensus, but, uh, uh, but an inability to work together, because of course, you need to create, as the saying goes, clear blue water between you and the other parties. And Yeah, I, I understand the need for that. Uh, um, and I'm not suggesting, and I can see difficulties in a in a yeah. in an overly consensus-based system too, where mm. no decisions are ever made. I I, mm. I see that, but but greater um, greater cross-party um, processes, particularly on some of the major issues, um, would mm. would be I think helpful. But I realise the practical. I don't want to blame the leaders. I realise the practical difficulties of of the situation that that they are in. Yes, yes. But that's something perhaps that the, we as Christians need to be more involved in is, is identifying those areas of common concern. And, and, uh, and trying to bring people on board that those, yeah. Yeah, that there are there are matters where this can happen. Yeah. It's happened before it can happen. Now, each week I ask my JPIC colleagues for a little roundup of their expertise and what they think about what we might be keeping an eye on in the world this week. And some of their suggestions this week, are, as we've just mentioned, the riots in Brasilia uh, with the, the shocking overtones of the Capitol building insurrection two years ago by supporters of the former leader uh, Bolsonaro. Um, and that's something we may wish to comment upon. And of course, I, I don't feel expert about commenting upon South American politics, let alone Funny. just about Wadsworth, I could just about do. <laughs> but um, very interesting, the um, interplay of um, Christian denominations in Brazilian politics and to an extent in US politics. The cost of living crisis, of course, continues and we are seeing continuing strikes, although there are talks today um, with some union leaders on a very limited basis. And we have the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And we are approaching the anniversary uh, of that and after the um, uh, Orthodox Christmas and the failed truce. Uh, I'd also add that we're in the church season of Epiphany, so I don't know if you think we've got two wise men today or not, or not, but we are approaching rapidly the week of prayer for Christian unity, which is the 18th to 25th. So with all that in mind and with our metaphorical newspapers in one hand and our Bibles in the other, let's uh, begin to examine the lectionary readings for the coming week. Now we've got um, uh, as usual, a psalm, Old Testament, New Testament, um, an epistle and a gospel. I wonder, Mike, where would you like to start this week? I mean, we probably won't get round to covering all of the um, all of the passages, but where would you like to start? I suppose just just start with psalm, just just briefly, perhaps. Mm. Um, psalm 40, 
a favorite favorite of mine, partly because I, I used to love you too. Um, and they, they wrote a song about Psalm 40, or at least the beginning of it. So I waited patiently upon the Lord, it begins. Mm. And this idea of, of waiting patiently is one that's echoed frequently by psalmist. Mm. And I, I think it's a helpful reminder that sometimes what we wait for in terms of the things of God do not come as quickly as we would like. That's frustrating for us. But it also means that when we wait, we are in good company with others who've been along that journey before us. And there are many people who continue to wait for the things of God. And part of that, of course, is, is a waiting to see God's, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's salvation being manifest. And the sense of being heard, the, 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 the first verse goes on to say, he stooped to me and heard my cry. That sense of being listened to, I think, is also really important. One of the things that we, we, we face, at least on my doorstep immediately outside the church, is, is of course, the remnants of Grenfell Tower, mm -hmm. uh, which burned down five and a half years ago now. And people here, of course, are still waiting for justice. And sadly, they, I fear, may be waiting some time yet. And, and the waiting eats away at people and it fractures relationship and, and it, it can damage relationships within communities or between the authorities and the local community, even as the inquiry process is moving slowly towards a conclusion. And one of the things that has been said time and time again by people locally is mm. just the sense that they have never been listened to. And therefore, the sense of an inquiry, of being heard in the media, of having national services commemoration and much else is a way in which they feel listened to. And with that listening comes some sense of validation. Yeah. So there's this sense of, of not only waiting, but listening, but of course you can't, you can't keep on waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, and the Psalm speaks about how God heard the cry and lifted, lifted up out of, out of the pit, out of the mire. Um, and, then the person is left to in a different place to be able to give thanks and to rejoice that God's salvation has now been experienced. That must continue to be our hope and prayer for all those who need help, who feel marginalized, who feel vulnerable in any kind of way at the present time. Yeah. So that's where one thing where I'd where I'd begin, I think, with that, just the sense of waiting patiently for you. And, and when I read that psalm, I, I, I did think immediately of your situation because um, people, especially outside London, outside Methodism, won't know the fact that Grenfell Tower was a social issue, a political issue that was really for it was it was you had no choice but to engage with it because um, I didn't fully realise until we had a synod at, um, at, at Notting Hill at Mike's Church that if Mike stands in his pulpit, I think I'm right in saying you can see Grenfell Tower out of the window of the church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a 60-second walk. It's, it's, and it was, it was there in front of you, and on the, uh, at the time of the fire, your church was used as a, as a centre for relief, was it? Am I right in saying? Well, it was one, it was one of many centres that opened its doors and, yeah. and, 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 and allowed the community to, um, themselves to run a, a kind of, um, uh, relief operation. Yeah, which carried and, on for. Some and you, that sort of issue has been for. How? I mean, we, we need to move on to other issues, but 
you're coming toward the end of your ministry in Notting Hill and, and as Methodist ministers we regularly move on and there'll be a time at the end for your reflection but uh, of that period but I, I wonder how do you think has how do you think Grenfell Tower has shaped your ministry that that political issue that's been forced into your pulpit how do you think it has shaped you and perhaps changed you even you know, as a minister how to say how it's changed me it's it's opened my eyes and made me more fired up i suppose and, and perhaps more determined to act than i might have been i think it's 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 recognizing it's seeing the human impact of decisions that people make yeah. um, and e even when as i can at times i can understand the decisions people make sometimes that and i've spoken to many people in bodies like the local authority and the TMO, who, who are certainly, from my, my, my judgment, appear to be, by and large, good, well-intentioned people, can, can fail with catastrophic effects. And, and it's not just about, although individual attitudes and prejudices are part of this, it's also about the systems and, and how, you, how, you, how you build in a system build in a process into any system which allows voices to be heard and and when you've when you talk to people and you realize it's not just background for fire it's about all kinds of things where people feel time and time again they've not been listened to and not been listened to and not been listened to that you realize i mean somebody in the local church not this one to me said that that actually this was already a traumatized community before the fire yeah let alone afterwards um and and there is some truth in that it, it was a broken and fractured community for, for a number of reasons. Uh, so I think it, it has opened my eyes to, to just digging, digging a bit below the surface, well, more than a bit, digging right below the surface. Um, and, and, and I think it is when, you, when you're confronted with people's stories and you, and you visit people and see where people, you see where people live, uh, you, you're changed. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, from because I, I worked at Westminster and there's all these exciting things going on but what you realized was that so many of the important things that affect really affect people's life happen in small committee rooms somewhere and how much we ignore local government it's all about Westminster yeah. it's all about that and it's actually the crucial decisions that affect people's lives are you regularly made in town halls and it, it, I suppose it said to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a white middle class liberal mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, so I, I, I think I try and do the right thing. And it says to me, you know, actually good intentions, well, they're, they're helpful, but good intentions actually are, are, are far from adequate. It's really about outcomes. And, and, to, and to discover what the outcomes are, we need to listen to particular people, um, not simply go by the outcomes that we are looking for, or think are there, and and so again, that's that's one of the narratives from the local community, that the stats, some stats, may say one thing about consultations, but the but the kind of voice of, of people in the community is sometimes something else, um, and and therefore the the task of of enabling such voices and listening to them is is really quite a, a hard but vital task, and so I suppose it's helped me focus much more on. The, the unforeseen, sometimes unforeseen, outcomes of decisions and, 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 and making sure that that is seen by decision makers. Yeah, yeah. 
And of course, linking directly in there to the psalmist, that cry that we find here, but also this is a thanksgiving, for, but also so often in the Psalms, we hear that cry for justice and, 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 and that recognition they're not being, people are not being heard. And they say, why aren't you listening, God? Come on, get on with it. But there is that hope that, uh, that, that God has listened, has heard. Um, we need to let's so is there anything else you'd like to say about psalm 40 no no not not psalm righto so let's move on where would you like to go next well i mean i think i think the isaiah reading i find really quite provocative mm. um, i have to say um some of the, the the themes in isaiah 49 are ones which we find elsewhere elsewhere in scripture and i think in isaiah uh, so uh, about the difficulty of prophecy um, about about the opposition to prophecy, about the hesitations about about speaking the word of God or for God in any kind of way. So, like verse two, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Yeah, that's a tantalising verse. Probably don't have time to go into now, but it recognises that, that that prophecy can be both difficult and and uh, nor should we be nor should we be that nor should there be any arrogance about prophecy either mm. there should be a humility that that comes with that as we find in isaiah what i particularly find interesting is this is where kind of verses five and six or four five and six where isaiah is saying you know i i have no i have no strength really to do this this task and we discover in verse five that that god provides the strength because isaiah is obedient and therefore we see a model whereby uh, weakness is transformed into strength. That's, that's a line in Paul, and, and we find it elsewhere mm. in Scripture, of course. But I find it's profoundly, it's part of that kingdom reversal. So it's it's not about the loudest voice or the or the greatest eloquence. There's something here about Isaiah which acknowledges weakness and therefore is not about how good, how big, how strong I am. It is It is how weak I am and how God is, the things of God, might be manifest through weakness and vulnerability um, more than strength and power and might. I find that profoundly uh, profoundly to be true and consistent with the gospel message of Jesus. But then we move on. So, so this message has been about a light to, to Israel, about gathering the nations together, a homecoming, the kind of thing that Israel will want and will delight in. And then we get to verse six where God said, ah, but I'm not going to leave you there. You know what? More than this, more than this, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And, and when we think about it, that, that is mind-boggling. It really is. Because now the whole frame is changed from a mere, uh, a mere restoration of something to something that's completely new and far more inclusive. So instead of it being about Israel, God says, and by the way, this isn't just for you. This, this, you know, I as God and what I offer is actually for the entire humanity, indeed, the whole of creation. Um, and I'd love to know, what, well, we don't have it in that passage in terms of the reaction to that. And then as soon as we find that, that issue about inclusion rather than the limitations of nationality or, or faith or whatever it is then verse 7 goes on and speaks about the redeemer of israel and his holy one as one deeply despised abhorred by the nations and the slave of rulers 
to which kings will then stand up and honor them. But, mm. but we find as soon as we have that message, that wonderful message, then we find issues of rejection and conflict built into it as well. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's a huge amount to unpick there. But again, I find this, this um, uh, I find it resonant with the, with the life and ministry of Jesus too. I, this isn't about Jesus per se, this passage. But yeah. I do find that the message of God here is consistent with what we see in Jesus as well. Well, it's what I was going to, to say there was, um, just turning off my phone onto silent, of course, too late. Um, uh, you read that passage and you just see, you just hear Jesus, don't you? And it's, you see, you can see why um, Jesus himself identified partly as the servant, but also um, early Christians immediately drew those parallels between uh, what Jesus, his mission, uh, and his the role of this mysterious servant, which commentators and theologians still argue about exactly who the servant is and what it's meant to be. You know, perhaps it's Israel, perhaps it's something else. But um, you, that he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And think of um, uh, testing my Bible knowledge now um, uh, after the visit to the temple and says, you know, you come to divide people and these, these Mary's heart was pierced. And Jesus said, I have come with a sword to you know, separate people um one from another um you can always guarantee that when you want it the, the exact verse goes from your head can't you but um I, I think there's something really interesting that that line he made my mouth like a sharp sword about the role of a prophet and that prophet the, the 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 challenge of being a prophet voice which we see in the pages of scripture and all the prophets who suffered and were from Abel to Zachariah um, and we see it in the course most appositely yeah, most perfectly in the life of Jesus. Do you do you think do you think as we as preachers do you think we should have more sharp swords in our mouths perhaps? I don't. I, I think it depends on the context. Mm. I think if we go around thinking we should have sharper swords, the danger is that that we may that we may you know that there, there's a about where we want to inflict them rather than where God's God's word applies mm. um, and there can be that there can be a certain I, I suppose perhaps arrogance in the in the preacher and I think always you know the preacher you need you need to you need to have a certain a certain reverence humility and being sometimes plain scared mm. I think preacher um overconfidence is is fatal I think mm. um, um, and although we want to offer something that we believe to be true and with as much certainty of faith as we can muster, nonetheless, uh, I, I think we, we need to exercise, we exercise due care. What I would say is that that, 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 that word of God, which is like a sword, um, you know, it applies to me as much as anybody else. It applies to all of us. It applies to our churches, our systems. Um, uh, and I often feel when I'm preaching, the person who really most needs to hear the sermon I'm offering is me. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but 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 uh, I'd want, I suppose, to balance that sword with with other things. And I, we, I think we find that in the story of Jesus. So Jesus is both deeply divisive. He says some very difficult things, difficult things for me to hear too. He doesn't just he doesn't just speak words of inclusion. 
Um, sometimes he speaks, which which are very uh, kind of difficult to hear. Mm. And he indeed welcomes people that I really I think are are very much unlovely and mm. tax collectors, soldiers, uh, for instance. Uh, um, he welcomes the bullies mm. and, and and the really bad you know malicious people too. Um, so I think it's it's concerns to be very difficult. But we need to we need to try and balance. All these things so jesus says these things and yet he also says words of affirmation and of encouragement and understanding failure and weakness at the same time and we need to hold those both together i think mm. otherwise we we run the risk of of feeling that we are just just feeling guilty yeah um, and there, there are times when guilt is useful but not that often mm. yeah it's it's a very difficult line to tread i mean there's a the classic role of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable which i often mull in my head um i don't know if you agree with that it's it yeah i do i do but it's also about context and i've I, in most of my churches i've been putting the call of jesus to come and follow and you know sell all and follow me hmm. uh, in an old people's home when i preach in front of people with dementia that that message has to has to be different yeah it has to be about God hears you. God has not forgotten you. God loves you. Mm. And, and, and it is the same gospel, yeah. but, it's for, but it's in a different context. And in, and in Notting Hill, my preaching is different from it is elsewhere, where, where people are very aware of the, of the divisive issues in our society. And in many cases are being told time and time again, you don't count, you fail. Um, what, and what often people need to do, you are affirmed, you are loved, you can do this and we can do this together. Um, and you are, you know, you are good, you are beautiful, you have gifts. And how can we help these gifts be used helpfully and collaboratively in the service of God? Um, isn't the whole message. But um, mm. I, I, I think it does vary on content. But yes, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable in general, I would say, yes, is, is a, I suppose, an apt summary of the message of Jesus. Yeah, difficult as it is, it is. But then there's and perhaps a call for us all to reflect whether whether this week we are called to be sharp swords or I don't know what the opposite of a sharp sword is a is a comfortable armchair with a cat in it or something. But um, you know what our what our call is. Now we're coming toward the end of our time. I, did you wish to say anything about the other two readings? Yeah, the the, the only thing I think is significant is is from the, the briefly from the Gospel of John. Mm. Um, it is this 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 phrase about it's a very different kind of feel, of course, to the to the other gospels, where Jesus is is in plain sight. It's obvious we see Jesus and we know straight away what he's about. Here is the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and so on. Um, uh, and whereas in the other gospels, of course, they spend ages trying to work out exactly the, the the nature and identity of Jesus. Here it's straight off. But but the interesting thing, what I think one is, is about Lamb of God and. It is about, again, uh, humility and obedience, I think, in that, that image of the lamb. It is about a, an image which is about weakness and, to come back to what we said mm. earlier, perhaps suffering servant mm. than, than the strong man or the strong woman. So mm. I just want to leave it as that in the sense that, that when we see the Messiah, the answer to our expectations, the one who's going to bring salvation to rid our world of sin and injustice and everything else, brokenness, misery, mm. It's it's done through the 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 image of a lamb of God, mm -hmm. not the strong arm of God. Yeah.
Thank you very much indeed. That's been a very, very interesting conversation. And I do hope it's been helpful to put folks um, preparing their sermons this week or their, their worship. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, and I do hope you have, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with your friends. We also have online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics on Twitter at pulpits, sorry, at pulpit underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit. We also have a Facebook group, which you can access through the Joint Public Issues Team's Facebook page and the website jpit.uk, that's jpit.uk. Thank you so much for being with us, Mike, and for all those <laughs> inspirational thoughts and for being my first guest in this season. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again very soon and to being with everybody else uh, next week. Let's go this week into both our politics and our pulpits with a blessing. May you be anointed with God's spirit as you bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free. Amen. Goodbye and God bless.